But Lord, we ask you to speak to our hearts tonight through your word. We pray that each one of us would have uh, a willingness to hear, to grow, to learn, to receive encouragement from your word, to receive correction if needed, but uh, to, to fellowship with you. You have written down your words for us so that we could know you. And we pray that tonight we would know you more by the reading and the teaching of your word. So we pray that your spirit would just open up our understanding, that you would be glorified. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. So tonight we wrap up the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews, as we've said before, is a really interesting book in the New Testament because it's specifically written to Jewish believers in the first century. These are people who would have grown up in Judaism with all of the law and all of the tradition and all of the, the regulations and all the things you've got to do, and then they accepted Jesus Christ. And once they accepted Jesus Christ, they understood that their sins were forgiven by what Jesus Christ did on the cross, but there's a struggle now because there's an immense cultural pressure especially from their family, from their past religious experience and past religious leaders, to say you cannot just be a Christian. You cannot just abandon everything we've held, really at this point for thousands of years as a culture. You can't just walk away from that. And so to, to stand up as a Christian could have cost you your marriage, could have cost you your job, in certain situations would have cost you your life. And so there was a lot of pressure on the Jewish believers in the first century to say, you know, maybe we could just kind of Keep Jesus, but keep it a little bit on the down low. Keep Jesus, but kind of do all the all the you know the good Old Testament things that we're that we grew up thinking we were supposed to do. And the author of Hebrews, we don't know the person who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we know that the Holy Spirit spoke through whichever person he designated. The Holy Spirit, as he's writing the book of Hebrews, is making a point very emphatically that Jesus is better. And so that's the theme of the book. Across every different idea he's going to unpack, the idea is Jesus. Christ is better. He's better than the Old Testament law. He's better than the Old Testament prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than the angels. He's, he's better than the entire priesthood. He is a actual priest. He's a better high priest for us than the Jewish high priest. And he offers us a better way of life by teaching us that righteousness can be obtained through faith and not through works. Okay? And so that's what we've been for 11 chapters. For four weeks now, we've been unpacking this idea that Jesus is better. And tonight, what the author's going to do is he, he's been weaving in application through the book. Because it is, again, we've said it before, it's an Eastern cultural book. So there's sort of a main central point and all these other points just kind of ping off of it. Okay, So he's been weaving different thoughts and different applications throughout it. But tonight, he really starts to, to break down, okay, if all these things are true, what should this do in our life? Okay, and so there's just a couple, there's a handful really of just very specific but very powerful applications in these two chapters that we're going to read tonight. So chapter 1 verse 12 starts off, therefore, and the book of Hebrews is, is a great practice for what Bible teachers say, which is that when you come to the word therefore, you should ask yourself, what is it therefore? And if you are reading the book of Hebrews, you'll have lots of practice because the author sticks it in like every other paragraph. He's just, he's just constantly running one thought into another and just tying them all together. And so in a very real sense, what he's connecting here is the idea of chapter 11, the idea that we have a testimony throughout the Old Testament of people being made righteous by faith and not being made righteous by the law. But really, this is, I think, uh, in some ways, the linchpin of the entire book. Okay, it's therefore 
based on what we just read in chapter 11. But really, it's therefore because of where we've covered in the entire book up to this point. Okay? So therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. A lot of pastors like to spend a couple months in this passage, okay? So we are, we're, uh, we're blowing through it, which is why, again, you should be reading the word on your own time to come back and to be able to let these things meditate. But our goal tonight is to, to move through in an overview form so that we understand comprehensively where the big picture is taking us, okay? But chapter 12 says, Therefore, because we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, because we are aware now, not only of all these truths about the fact that Jesus is better than the priest, he's better than the prophets, he's better than the angels, he's better than the law, he's better than the sacrificial system, because we're not only aware of those truths, but because we're now also aware of the, of the truths of the example and the testimony of people who have gone before, of, of People who believed in God, like Abraham, it says in the book of Genesis. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Because we have that testimony from the Old Testament, that righteousness is not by doing things, righteousness is by believing in God and accepting what he offers. Therefore, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Really, chapter 12 is all about getting the game. Chapter 12 is about, if you understand what the first 11 chapters have been about, quit goofing off, get real, get in the game, and run your race. Run your life. And a couple, there's a couple major principles here. He says you need to run it with endurance. Okay? So how well you start out as a Christian is really beside the point. Christianity is not a short dash. It is a lifelong race, which means that what you need it's not incredible strength or incredible you know, human stamina. What you need is endurance. The ability to keep going slowly and steadily. And so in order to attain that, there's a couple things we need to do. We need to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. There are sins that will slow us down from running our race. They will, they will trip us up. They will, in some cases, actually prevent us from finishing our race. Sin, if you want to run your race with endurance, sin needs to go. But also, there are weights. And that's an interesting concept because there are some things in our lives that are not necessarily sins. But as we're walking with the Lord, He would encourage us and tell us, hey, if you want to go, if you want to go into a deeper relationship with me, this thing needs to go. Right? And, and if you want to run effectively, this thing needs to go. And sometimes it's just a distraction. Sometimes it's just something that pulls at us. Sometimes it's just a, you know, it may not be an actual sin, it could be a hobby, it could be a pursuit, it could be a, a dream or a pipe dream. It could be any one of a number of things. But sometimes there are things in our life that are weights. And weights, what does a weight do? A weight slows you down, right? I don't think, I'm not 100% positive, but I really don't think there's any rule in the Olympics that says you are not allowed to run with a weight vest. It, it's, I don't think it's on the rule books because... Pretty much every runner at the Olympics knows the goal is to run as light as possible because we're trying to win a race if we get to the Olympics, right? You might train with a weight vest. You might do all kinds of things. But when it's time to run for the medal, 
you are going to strip off everything that is legally possible, and you are going to run that race. And so they don't really have to tell you, hey, don't put on weights, because you know, and the rule keepers know, that's just going to slow you down. So of course you're not going to do that. And, and the author here is, is applying the same principle to our lives. There are things that will trip us up, that the Lord would just say, you know what, that's not for you. And because it's not, it's specified that these, some of these things aren't exactly sins, what that means is we need to all be having a personal relationship with the Lord. We're a personal walk where the Lord can say, hey, Nate, in your life, this is a problem. This may not be a problem for every other believer. Other believers might be just fine with this thing in their life. But for you, nuh uh. Right? He might call us and say, hey, friend, hey, kid, listen up. This is not for you. All right? But he says also, verse 2, looking unto Jesus. That's going to be the summary of, I mean, really, it's a summary of this chapter. It's a summary of the book. It's a summary of the Bible. Okay? If you want to run your race with endurance, you're going to do it, and you are only going to do it by looking at Jesus. If you get your eyes off of Jesus Christ, if you start running your race for your own glory, or you start running your race for your kids, or you start running your race so you can accomplish something, if you start running your race for anything other than seeing Jesus Christ at the end of that finish line, you're not going to run your race very well. Right? So he says, look unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher. He started you out on this race, and he can finish you on this race. And so all of a sudden, like once again, as it, as it happens over and over in Hebrews, this isn't about you. This isn't about me. This is not, it's a race, and you're running the race, and you're called. Lay aside the weights and the sins, but oh, by the way, you have nothing to do with, with finishing this race. Right? It's this, it's this paradox that the scriptures bring up over and over and over again, that yes, there are works that you are expected to do to run effectively, but no, those works will not finish the race for you. You are not called to save yourself. You're not called to demonstrate. Uh, you're not called to earn your salvation by your works, but because you've been made righteous by the power of God, you are expected to let your works reflect that you understand that. So if you want to run faithfully, focus on Jesus. If you want to run well, focus on Jesus. If you've got a slow start, focus on Jesus. If you've got a great start, focus on Jesus. If you're running great right now, focus on Jesus. If you're tripping up, you need to do, focus on Jesus. Because he's the author and the finisher who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't forget what Jesus went through, but also don't forget where Jesus is now. Right? Don't forget the depth of his sacrifice, but don't forget the thrill of his glory that he's in right now. Verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So kind of the same idea. He's building on this thought, and he'll build on it even further. But he's saying, you know, Jesus Christ endured. He endured the cross. He endured the shame. Okay? He endured hostility from sinners. So consider those things, lest you become weary. Whenever you look at, at what we're going through, we can say, wow, this is so hard, this is so intense, I just can't make it. Yeah, you're right, you can't. But you know what? Jesus made it through something much greater. Much greater. And he is offering us his power. He is not saying, I went through something incredibly hard, and now you're going through something kind of hard, and now it's up to you to pull yourself through it, because I already did it, can't you pull it off on your own? He's saying, no, no, I went through something so hard you cannot fathom it. You are going through something challenging, but something that is no big deal for me. And I am offering you my power. 
the power of the Holy Spirit that raised me from the dead, I'm offering you that in its fullness right now to get through the situation that you think is catastrophic that I happen to know is not the end of the world. I'm giving you that level of power to walk in victory in your life. So he's making a point. If we're running our race, we're looking unto Jesus, and there are challenges that will come. And we will feel like, man, Jesus is letting me down. Jesus is failing me. He says, no, no, wait a second. Jesus endured. And he's offering us the same power to endure. You have not, verse 4, he says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. You haven't, you know, we talked about this, I think, two weeks ago. Sometimes we think, oh, wow, it was easy for Jesus to resist temptation. He was God. But by not giving in to sin, Jesus has actually experienced temptation at a higher level than any of us, right? Because we just kind of give in at the first, the first pass, right? Like, oh, I'm not going to sin. Well, I mean, not this time. And yeah, I mean, just a little bit like right now. Like, okay, I'm not going to I mean, I'm not going to sin tomorrow, right? Like, we, we don't really have a lot of stamina in our own strength to resist sin. And Jesus walked perfectly without sin, being tempted, and yet never stumbled. So he made it past level one. He made it past level two. I don't know how many levels there are of temptation, but he made it through all of them. Okay? And the author's just saying, hey, by the way, you haven't resisted temptation as much as Jesus has. So if you say, wow, I'm going through something, Jesus can't help me out, actually, you're wrong. Verse five, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. We're going to read a bit of a chunk here. So you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, and now he goes into a quote from the Old Testament. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So he starts to, in a sense, switch gears. He's talking at first about, you know, us enduring temptation and tribulation, and then he switches gears to sort of another aspect of hard things in our life, and that is the chastening of the Lord. And he says, do you not understand that some of the things that will come into your life are God's discipline. And it's kind of an ironic, you know, sometimes we have this idea of God as like just super encouraging and just uh, kind of mothering, and he is, but he's also a father, right? Paul in, in 1 Thessalonians, he describes his relationship with the church like a father and like a mother. And you know, like there's that time when we're just like, hey, you know what, it's going to be okay. Hey, we're going to you know, we're just going to you know, put a band-aid on it, and we're going to kiss it, and we're going to do that. And there's times when God is like a father, like, rub some dirt in it and walk it off. Suck it up. And so he's kind of going down the suck it up route here, okay? So sometimes, understand, sometimes hard things come because we have an enemy who wants to oppress us. We have uh, our own stupidity, which sometimes causes us to reap consequences for the sins we've committed. But sometimes, the Lord is disciplining us, right? Sometimes the Lord spanks his children, and there's an idea here, the guy's making a point. God deals with us as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? So 
you know, this, it's fun for me because I'm not a parent, so I have all these incredibly just perfect theories on raising children that nobody has appreciated yet. But, uh, like, you wait. I mean, I just, if you ever want, like, advice from somebody who knows all about raising kids, all my theories have never yet been proven wrong. I'm just saying. Um, but the author makes a point that God deals with his sons by chastening them, and, and with his daughters also. But if you are enduring chastening from the Lord, the author's making a point here that that's actually a mark of the fact that you are God's child. Because think about, think about spanking, okay? There's a couple of rules kind of with spanking, right? One is that you should never spank your kid uh, when you've lost your self-control, right? They're just like, no, you get, get in control of the situation. You might need to apologize to your child for losing your self-control and then spank your child in self-control, right? Uh, your goal is never to beat your children. Your goal is to discipline them, to train them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, okay? Um, but there's a kind of, I would say it seems obvious, but our world is losing its mind. So sometimes what was obvious is not obvious anymore. There's, a, there's like a, a rule of spanking kids, and that is that you only spank your kids, right? Like, that's just kind of goes with the territory, right? Like, if somebody spanks somebody else's kids, that's no bueno. Like, you go to jail for that sort of thing because there's an understanding that, bro, that is not your kid. That is your spoon, but that is not your kid, and you cannot connect your spoon with somebody else's kid. Like, it does not work that way, right? And so sometimes you look at a kid and you say, somebody ought to give that kid a spanking. I had a situation this week with a kid. I was like, I was sitting next to a kid on, a, on an airplane, and I was like, it is about time for somebody to tell Carson to grow up and act like a man. And I'm about ready to do it. But I, you know, I was like, I'm not sure. I would have felt a lot better, but I don't know if that would have accomplished anything. But you discipline your kids. And so when you're being disciplined by the Lord, it means the Lord sees you as his kids. If the Lord says, you know what, that's <clears throat> not my kid. I'm not spanking that kid. Right? I'm, you know what? I'll let his parent take care of that. That means you're a child of the devil. So, yes, sometimes the Lord will spank us. And it is not a bad thing because whom the Lord loves, he corrects. The Lord loves you enough to let you know when you are out of line. He loves you enough to tell you that your behavior is inappropriate or that your behavior is sinful or that your behavior is slowing down your walk with him. And so if you're in a position in life where you're just like, man, I feel like the Lord is just like, kind of sort of slapping me around. Well, it's because he actually cares about you. It's because he considers you his child. And he says, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. I think we could all testify to that. Nobody really enjoys getting punished. But afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline, well-applied, by a parent, a loving parent who is in control of the situation, yields righteousness. It trains a child in how to walk and how to live their life. And the discipline of the Lord yields the same thing in our lives. So the author says, you know what? You've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. And if you're keeping your eyes on Jesus, he will sometimes discipline you because you have stupid things in your life that need to get out of there. But it is because he considers you to be his children. Verse 12, Therefore... 
And he's kind of tying it back to verse 1, I think, where he's saying, you know, sort of, therefore, as we're running this race, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So he says, therefore, strengthen the hands, and make straight paths, and and, and encourage the feeble knees. And the idea here is, if you go back to verse 1, he said, hey, because you were surrounded by so great, great a cloud of witnesses, Lay aside the sin and the weight and run your race with endurance. But he's connecting an idea here to say, hey, you are also one of the witnesses. Right? You are, and, and it's an important understanding for us to have of how the Christian life works, where you are running a race. You are responsible for your walk with the Lord. Okay? And you should take comfort and encouragement from the lives of Christians who are more mature than you, who have gone farther than you, who have walked with the Lord for a greater period of time. But you are also an influence to other Christians around you who are learning how to walk with the Lord, who are learning how to run their race, who might have sins and weights that are still weighing them down that they need to learn how to weigh aside, who might be having a hard time keeping their eyes on Jesus. And so you are running your own race, but you're also responsible as you're running the race. It is not just about you. If there's a rock in the path, don't just jump over the rock, move the rock out of the way. If there's something in your life, that you can use as an opportunity to strengthen someone else, use it as an opportunity to strengthen someone else. If there's something in your life that could be a stumbling block to somebody else, it might be a weight. It might be something that's, for them, that's not a weight for you. But you might need to say, you know what, to encourage this brother or sister, I'm going to let this out of my life too. Because I want them to be able to run their race. Because Christianity is not about you. And it is not about me. It's about keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. And so if I might drop something in the path as I'm running the race that could stumble somebody else, I need to not do that. And he says, pursue peace and holiness with all people. Pursue peace with everybody. So try to be peaceful, but understand that that's not always possible. So Scripture says, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes it's not possible because the other person is unwilling, and that's fine. But pursue holiness. Your goal is is to look unto Jesus. It's to get closer to God, to become more holy as he points things out, as he disciplines us, as he tells us to lay aside certain weights and certain sins. And he says, look carefully. And then he gives us a couple warnings about things that will trip up people and trip up a church. Okay, he says, does anyone fall short of the grace of God? Not coming into grace and staying into works will damage somebody's race. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. Letting bitterness into your heart will damage your race. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. A profane person like Esau who says, you know what? You know, we'll we'll be in Genesis uh, probably about, I'm thinking May of next year is my hunch. Uh, But Esau has an opportunity to obtain a spiritual legacy or to obtain a bowl of soup. And he says, I don't really care about spiritual legacy. Like, what is, I mean, really? What am I going to do with it? Right? I'm hungry. Give me a bowl of soup. That's profaning what God is offering. And there are people who do that. Say, you know what? I mean, it's great. You know, sure, I can meet with the Lord. I can have a relationship with the Lord. But 
I'm busy. I've got a lot of things going on. I mean, Sunday morning is like my one day off. I'm just not really interested. I'll worship the Lord in my own way. Um, and, and so it's an interesting thing here because the Lord holds up bitterness, legalism, fornication, and lack of respect for the Lord all on an equal footing. And in some ways, that's really comforting. In some ways, that's a little bit unsettling, right? Because bitter people don't like to think of themselves on par with fornicators and adulterers, right? And adulterers who know really bitter people don't like to think of themselves as being as bad as those really bitter people. And legalists never like to think of themselves as bad as anybody because, you know, they're actually doing more holy things than anybody else. And profane people just don't give a rip. And the Lord holds them all up and says, these are all things that are going to slow down your race. Do not let them trip you up. Do not let them trip up the lives of the people around you. Verse 18. And here he's going to draw a contrast. And it's kind of the same that he's been doing throughout the book of back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the idea of the sacrificial system and keeping the law and the idea of receiving righteousness as the gift of Christ. Verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. He draws a contrast here between two mountains. And the Israelite people understood this. So to a Jewish audience, which is who he's writing it to, this has a lot of bearing. But he says, You're not, we're not going back to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was a mountain in probably Saudi Arabia today where the law was given. Where Moses went up on the mountain and the Lord gave him the plans for the tabernacle and the Ten Commandments. Okay? But he says, you haven't come to the mountain. That's the mountain that was, that was covered in fire and, and God said, if anybody touches that mountain, they're dead. Because the holiness of God is so sacred that if you defile it with your sinfulness, you have to die. You come to Zion, which is the mountain where Jerusalem, specifically what people today call the old city, was built. But he's making a point, you haven't just come to Jerusalem, you've actually come to the new Jerusalem, to the real Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem, the city, the real physical city and the real physical nation of Israel is a shadow of the real Jerusalem. Okay, there's, there's the city of God. Is, is coming, if you will, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's where Jesus is the priest. And it's, it's where we will dwell with Christ for eternity. And what does it look like? I really don't have any idea. My brain is not that big, okay? But he's saying, you haven't come. You didn't go to the mountain where the law was handed down. You instead went to Zion where you had the temple and the priesthood, and the opportunity to interact with God. But he's saying, you didn't go to the physical one here on this earth. You're now in the real one. We are in the presence of God right here, right now. In a sense, he's saying, you're at Mount Zion right here, wherever you're at geographically. You're with the presence of God. The real priest, Jesus Christ, has brought us in to the presence of God. And that's better than the law. That's better than every act of trying to make yourself righteous. So verse 25, he says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. 
For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Same idea as the beginning of the chapter. He says, get in the game. Pay attention. Listen up. Take it for real. Right? We're not shooting blanks anymore. We're shooting real bullets. Okay? This is, this is the real thing. Jesus Christ is real. So don't ignore him. And he says he's going to shake the earth once more. There's a shaking coming and all the things that we held on to that we thought could bring us happiness or bring us security, they're all going to pass away. I always, I always loved, I read a, a financial book years ago and the author's explaining how if you can, you can you know, do these things and manipulate these things and you can be super rich and you can build your empire. I said what he kept calling it, which felt a little self-obsessed. But anyways, he's talking about how you know, he and his wife now have this whole cross-leverage thing where they're making about $85 million a year and, and they're set. And, he's, and he says, we're set for life barring a financial disaster. And I was like, isn't that kind of the point? Like, like, as long as nothing bad happens, we're good. I'm like, yeah, but what if something bad happens, right? Because you're not good. Like, all that money could just disappear, right? There, there are situations in life at which point nobody cares about money anymore. And they happen. And they've happened for thousands of years. And there have been a lot of people who thought, oh, we're good, we're safe, and all of a sudden realized money has no value. It just disappeared. It was, a, it was an imaginary asset, right? There's a shaking coming, and he says all those things are going to pass away. So we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Verse 28, so let us have grace. For our God is a consuming fire. What can you hang on to? Right? When the shaking comes, what do you have? You have grace. You have the grace of God that says you are welcome into the presence of your creator by what I did on the cross. That isn't going to get shaken. You, and if you have that, right? if you have the grace of God, what comes after that? The peace of God. If you have the grace of God and the peace of God, really nothing else matters. right? So don't ignore him. If you ignore Christ, you will not have the one thing that matters. And if you follow Christ, no matter what else happens, you will have what you need. So verse, chapter 13, verse 1, he's now going to just kind of drop us some super, just, you know, boom, 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 practical exhortations. I said explanations. Exhortations. Chapter 13, verse 1, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Kind of a fun verse. He says, you know, Love people. Be friendly to people. And be friendly to strangers. And actually, every once in a while, FYI, he says, that stranger happens to be an angel. Wouldn't that be just like an awful bummer if you got to heaven and you like met this angel and you're like, hey, you know, my name's this. What's your name? And he's like, oh, no, we've met. Like, really? Yeah. Oh, don't you remember me? I came to your church. No. Oh, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was actually kind of a bum and I did stink. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, that was you. Uh, did, I, did I say hi? No, you didn't. You blew me up. No, no, you, um, you didn't. You weren't very nice. <laughs> sorry. 
that'd be awkward, right? And he says, hey, you know what? Be gracious to the people you're around because you never know what the Lord is doing. Angels are capable of putting on human flesh and, and walking among us. And I don't know that I could tell the difference, right? I mean, I hang out with you long enough and I'll find your, your flat spots. But if an angel, if you just kind of, you know, go through fast, it's anybody's guess, right? I'm not one, by the way, if you're all wondering. But uh, he says, be hospitable. Verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Be aware of prisoners. The world wants to think that prisoners just don't exist. Just put them away and you can forget about them. God says don't. And specifically, prisoners who are in prison for the sake of the gospel. He says, you yourselves are in the body also. Remember the persecuted church. Verse 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The church always has weird ideas. Tends to always get weird ideas about marriage and sexual expression between people. And here's the basic truth. God created sexual intimacy. And it's a wonderful gift in the context of the marriage of one man and one woman. In that context, God says, this is phenomenal. I think this is awesome. I actually invented it in the Garden of Eden as a perfect thing. You do it anywhere else, God says, it will destroy you. Doesn't matter what the context is. Doesn't matter who the person is. Doesn't matter if it's uh, virtual or real. It will destroy you. It, it, it is a monster that will put its claws in your neck and not let go. So the Lord says, hey, it's a great thing in the right context. Outside of that, it's awful. So don't play games with it. Verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what command do to me. Remember that he's writing this to believers who have now, at this point, lost their spouse because they're a Christian, lost their job because they're a Christian. Their entire extended family has held a funeral for them and said, as far as we're concerned, this person is dead. And, and the author here says, you know what? Just be content with what you got because what have you got? You have got the Lord who said he will never leave us or forsake you. What more could you really want? And you think, well, I could actually want, I could list a lot of things if you'd like me to. No, no. God says, no, no. You, really? What more could you actually want? Nothing. That's all you need. Verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. So verse 7, he basically says, show some respect to your pastor. But verse 8, he says, remember, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think there's a little bit of a contrast there on purpose of, you know, there's a couple spots in the scripture that are always awkward when you've got to teach them, but they're there, where the scripture says, you know what, be respectful to the person who is teaching the word of God. But also, that is not a blanket excuse to cover for bad behavior. Right? If a person is teaching the Word of God faithfully and they're walking and, they're dem and their example is demonstrating that they're trying to live out what they teach, it's okay to give a little respect for that, but also do not get caught up in just following them just because they said. You need to be having a personal relationship with the Lord because a pastor, a teacher, a leader, an elder, a deacon, any one of those people, they will stumble and they will disappoint you if they are your source of confidence. If they are your source of strength and, and they're what's keeping you in church, 
That is a dangerous road. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Remember what he said in chapter 12? Let's be looking unto Jesus, right? That's, it's okay to have role models. There are, there are people in the history of the church who I look up to immensely. I have I just an incredible amount of respect for. I love to read the things they wrote and listen to the sermons that they've taught. But I cannot use that. I cannot use their life. I cannot use their testimony as a replacement for what God wants to say to me. Verse 10 uh, he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. It's kind of a weird paragraph, all right? And I'll be honest, I read it like a half a dozen times and was still struggling to figure out what on earth it was talking about. So I pulled up David Guzik's Enduring Word Commentary, which I would encourage you all to have on your phone when you come to a passage of Scripture that you're like, I'm not sure what it is talking about. David Guzik is probably the most straightforward, simple, profound commentary in the scriptures. Okay, he's just like A, B, C. And you're like, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, right? But here's basically, here's what the author's saying. He's going back, because again, he's writing to a Jewish audience. He's going back to the idea of the sacrifices. And he says, understand, in the Jewish camp, in the, in the, uh, when the Israelites are wandering around the desert, Everything outside the camp is unclean. Okay, the Lord said, when you've got to use the restroom, you go outside the camp and you bury your stuff. Okay, when you burn a sacrifice, when there's a dead person or a dead body or there's filthiness that needs to be removed, it needs to go outside the camp. Because inside the camp is where things are clean. And the author's saying, understand something. Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. The Jews took him outside the city because they thought he was unclean. Okay, they said, we don't want... Um, you know, I'd be careful how you say it, but, but the Jewish idea was we don't want that trash in our city. And that's what they said about Jesus Christ. Okay? And the author says, you've got to understand things, specifically to a Jewish audience, but to all of us. He says, yes, the world considers Jesus unclean. And the solution to that is not to try and sterilize the message that Jesus brought. It is not to try and clean it up and make it more palatable to the world. It's just say, you know what? If you think Jesus was unclean, you're probably going to think I'm unclean too. I'm going to go out of the city. He says, we go out. Let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. He's writing to these Jewish people saying, you know what? Yeah, your family will not get it. Your family will consider you unclean. They will consider you actually unholy. They will tell you that you are not pleasing God. But if you are keeping your eyes on Jesus and you're running with endurance, and you're laying aside the sins and the weights, then you know what? It really doesn't matter what they think because they thought Jesus was unclean. So they think you're unclean might mean you're in very good company, right? So it's an exhortation to the church, to, every, to believers everywhere, 
Don't judge the validity of Christ based on what other people think of him. And don't try to change what he said in order to bring him back into the camp, in order to make him more acceptable to people. Right? You don't need to soften up what Jesus said. Jesus was very clear in what he said. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We don't need to, we don't need to wash that down or dilute it. If the world says that is not appropriate, then we say, you know what, I guess that counts me as an inappropriate person then. And so our goal is not to be obnoxious for the sake of Christ, but our goal is to be aware that the world should not find our lives rational. The world should not find our lives that attractive. Right? I mean, it's good if there are things in our life where the world says, you know what, you just have a, a peace that just kind of defines your life. What is that about? That's good. But the world says, man, you just, like, we just agree on everything. That's bad. Right? Pursue peace, but pursue holiness, he said. And so the idea is, do not get hung up on what the world thinks about you. Be much more focused on, are you keeping your eyes on Jesus? And then with that, he says, you know, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. Praise the Lord. He says, that, that's, and that's your sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? It used to be if you wanted to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, if you wanted to have fellowship with God, you had to go get a lamb or an ox or a goat or a pair of doves if you were too poor and you had to get them killed and then they had to sprinkle blood all over you and, and they'd say, yep, you're good until you mess it up next time. And if you wanted to bring a gift to the Lord, that's what it entailed. But now if you want to bring a gift to the Lord, you know what you can do? You can praise the Lord. Find something to thank him for. And if you are struggling to do that, Ask him to open your eyes. There's a lot of things to be thankful for in this life. But he says, offer him the sacrifice of your praise. Verse 17. He says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. Verse 18. Pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience and all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. Verse 20. Now, may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. I love this benediction. He says, may the God of peace make you complete, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus. May God make you complete by working what he thinks is best. Right? May God make you complete by God accomplishing God's plan for your life. Not by you getting what you want or what you desire or saying, oh God, I need this or God, this is, if this doesn't happen, this, you know, wow, I just feel like my prayers aren't getting answered. You know what? May God make you complete. God is the, Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is working everything out in his way and in his timing. And so sometimes we struggle like, this is just not fair. It's, it's not moving. I feel like I'm, I'm trying to do everything right. And the Lord says, you know what? I am making you complete. I see the end from the beginning. I understand 
a much greater dynamic than you possibly can, and I'm working. And so the author says, may he do that. I think that's just that's an awesome prayer for every one of us. That's an awesome prayer to pray for somebody in your life. If you're not sure what to pray for them, say, God, make them complete. Right? Finish the work you're doing in them. Don't stop. Keep it going. Don't quit. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He wants to work in us. And then he says, I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the exhortation. I've written you in few words. He says, hey, basically, put up with, I know it's a short book, but I tried to cover everything I could. And we're like, well, you succeeded, right? You only wrote like the most complicated book of the New Testament. Congratulations. Um, and he says, greet all those. And then he ends, grace be with you all. Amen. Because if we have grace, we've got everything we need, right? If you have grace of God, you have all that you need. And so it's worth asking tonight, do you have the grace of God? Have you experienced it? Do you know where you are with the Lord? And if you don't, and if you want to know, it is possible to walk out of here tonight knowing exactly where you stand with God. Right? Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it requires belief and it requires confession. You need to be willing to admit that you've sinned, and you need to be willing to ask him to forgive you. You do those things, he says, hey, welcome to the family. Right? So if you do not know, find me. Find dad. Find really anybody in this church. Okay? Grab one or two people. Say, hey, I'm not positive. Or hey, I know. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't experienced grace, and I want to. If you want to understand forgiveness, if you want to understand the power of God working in you, instead of you trying to accomplish things on your own, grab somebody. Ask them for prayer. That's part of confessing. It, it's a public act. And so do that. If, you're, if, you're already, if you know you've experienced the grace of God, that's fantastic. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ because he's the author and the finisher of your faith. And so Lord, we thank you for the book of Hebrews and just the, the powerhouse that it is of reminding us that Jesus Christ is better than everything we could ask for, anything we could hope for. He's better than every attempt to reach holiness on our own. And God, we pray that we would never lose sight of what Christ did and of where he's at now, that we would keep our eyes on Jesus. God, focus our hearts, focus our vision. Don't let us get distracted by the stupid things that are pulling for our attention. We want to be people who run with clarity, with focus, who run to win, who run with endurance. And we pray that you would accomplish that work in our hearts, that we would be people that each one of us individually, but all of us collectively, would be in the pursuit of a righteous and holy God who offers us a free invitation to come into his presence. And so Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for what Jesus Christ did for us. And we just ask as we go out that you would go before us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would direct us by your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.